0: This episode is brought to you by Fully Gemstones.
1: The most famous story about birds during the war in in France, and many people know it, that when, you know, Jean Toussaint put this very small little bird in a cage in the window of Cartier on the Rue de la Paix, that the Gestapo went in and questioned her. You know, some people believe that she was put in jail and then busted out by Coco Chanel, but Cartier
0: tells me, no, that's not the case. Welcome to If Jules Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, Delving into four centuries of jewellery culture and investigate what's happening now. Happy New Year and welcome to new sparkling episodes of If Jewels Could Talk. Jewellery designers are passionate lovers of Mother Nature's designs, and animals have been a major design source, either resurrected from the past or as original creatures. And I think it's interesting how different animals have been in vogue over the last 150 years, representing certain eras. So in a way, animal jewellery imagery is a commentary of the times. And today we're going to discuss this with Marian Faisal, who I'm delighted is my guest. Marian is the founder of The Adventurine, an online magazine. She's a jewellery historian. She's the author of several books about jewellery. And her latest book is Beautiful Creatures, Jewellery Inspired by the Animal Kingdom. And it was written to accompany the exhibition she curated at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. Hello, Marion. Thank you so much for joining me today on If Jewels Could Talk. Thank you for having me, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're going to be talking about beautiful creatures, your work, and jeweled animals in particular. And I can see behind you, you've got some beautiful butterflies.
1: I do. And I, ironically, I had those before, um, you know, I wrote the book or even thought about animal jewelry too much. So it was definitely in my, you know, psyche somewhere.
0: So we know jewelry designers have always been passionate lovers of mother nature. And animals have been a sort of major design source, either resurrected from the past or as original creatures. We're going to talk about 150 years worth of animals, fish, birds, insects, fantasy creatures, which have crawled and slithered across shoulders, around arms, necklaces and fingers. And I thought actually reading your book, how interesting it is that different animals have been in vogue at different times. And I thought in a way that they represented a sort of commentary of the times. Because they were affected so much by outside influences, such as cultural or aesthetic movements or different things happening in history. Did you find that as you were writing the book?
1: It was actually a requirement in order to be in the book that I, you know, I told somebody when I was giving them a tour of the exhibition, which was really the inspiration for the book, it was a companion piece to the exhibition I curated at the American Museum of Natural History, which was celebrating its 150th anniversary, which is why we have that number. But um, I said, you know, nothing is here just because it's pretty. Everything had to link back to some sort of context, uh, cultural reason to exist um, or, you know, the, the gems that came into vogue at the time, animals that were
0: popular for various reasons. And I was thinking also as well that, that you start the book with butterflies and that, you know, in the 19th century, women really associated their femininity with the delicacy of a butterfly and then her majesty the queen addressed the cop26 with a magnificent brooch and i thought it had a completely different meaning there it was about climate change about conservation and it's interesting how one uh, the, the butterflies are the same but they have a different meaning Absolutely.
1: And I loved seeing the queen in the butterfly when she made those statements. That was just a thrill for me. But but you're absolutely right. And the butterfly is the perfect example of that, because it's one of the most um, ubiquitous creatures over the last 150 years and the meaning does change. For example, in the late 19th century, your Princess Alexandra had a all diamond butterfly. And I think that that did relate to the passion for Butterfly and insect collecting at that time. I don't think she was necessarily wearing it for a social reason. And hers was all diamond, which in some ways is counterintuitive to how we think of the butterfly as being so colorful. But of course, the all diamonds was reflecting the fact that the diamonds were coming from the Kimberley Mine in South Africa. So all high jewelry was made with all diamonds. But in the 1960s, per se, I mean, there was a lot of uh, butterflies and they were really reflecting sort of the cultural shift, you know, the more casual clothing, jeans and macrame and colors and the changes that were happening in society at the time, the youth quake. You know, so I think that, yes, we look at the butterfly as a figure of transformation and metamorphosis and freedom and liberation and and sometimes just a figure of beauty. you know, the butterfly for the nineteenth century crowd was very different, and I think yes when when Queen Elizabeth was wearing it, I feel like
0: she was just making a statement on on the beauty of nature. I like to think she was and I guess the the wings, the four wings are just the perfect place if you want to have a variety of gemstones there is a lovely kind of canvas platform to, to set these stones.
1: It really is. That's exactly the word I used. It's, it's this wonderful canvas. And for me, to see the butterflies that were made over the last 150 years was interesting intellectually because it's like um, the, the examples that I used, the designers kept that canvas with the forewings, the hindwings, you know, the body and the antenna. And then within that framework, things changed dramatically in terms of the designs that were used. We had the all diamonds in the late 19th century, colors that were used by Belperon in the 1930s, and then coming up closer to the present, Um, Wallace Chan, I have an example of one of his jewels, and they're encased, he has actual butterfly wings encased in rock crystal and mother of pearl with kind of titanium on the edges. So it really shows you how technology and the gems evolve, but
0: within the same canvas, which I found very interesting. Yeah, because um, also talking about how materials affect the design, I guess um, at the sort of late 19th century, there was the introduction of platinum, which changed how jewellery could be made and how large it could be made.
1: Yes, absolutely. I ha- one of my absolute favorite pieces in the book and the exhibition was a dragonfly that was made by Julia Munson, who was in the Louis Comfort Tiffany studio. And the wings on the dragonfly were all platinum wire. And the wire was made to look like the veins in the wings of the dragonfly. But there were no, the body was mother of pearl with some demantoid garnets at the center. But the, there was no no gems in the wings they were simply showing off you know what they could do with platinum, and we never saw this again because it was simply so difficult and that 's the thing when you find jewels that are made at those turning points in technology you know jewelers will, will go the extra mile because they have an enthusiasm for the material, and that was certainly
0: true with platinum so they could make it. Very, very gossamer light and very gossamer thin. Yes. Because there was this new technology to melt platinum, which they hadn't been able to discover before. And of course, silver tarnished and gold was heavy. So um, I guess you got some much more gossamer-like butterflies. Exactly. It was completely gossamer-like. I was thinking also of the old Wardian butterflies, that they were then able to put the mechanism where they were en tremblant. So they would move.
1: Yes, the entremblant mechanism really was, was on all the butterflies that I had, you know, from, from the Edwardian period all the way through to the, today. I think it's just something that putting that spring on the back so that they move is really just a wonderful, um quality and a slightly funny story for the exhibition do you know how in uh most museums when you walk up to a piece of uh, an en tremblant piece that's displayed on the wall and it will kind of move a little bit with the vibrations of your feet on the ground to the case have you ever experienced yes. that Yes, yes. So I imagined I had this entire wall of butterflies and dragonflies and birds. And I imagined when people walked up the entire wall would kind of have this vibration. But the Gems and Mineral Hall at the American Museum of Natural History had just been renovated. So it was solid. The floor it's was solid. No sol- moving. <laughs> no moving. And the registrar was just thrilled to death. And I was like, Oh, I'm so disappointed. The tromblon doesn't move on the wall. But, um, yes, they, they all did it. And, and having that movement in the animal jewels is really true. It was true of many of the jewels in lots of fun and different ways. How, um, you, you know, for example, the Cartier Pan. Panthers; those heads, you know, move just a little bit, so you can turn it to the left and turn it to the right, and um, all the jewels had that movement. Lots of articulation in the pieces; they were really wonderful. You could see how jewelers had a good
0: time making them lifelike. And then we have a modern version when Glenn Spiro made a beautiful butterfly for Beyoncé, which um, I photographed for Vogue. Actually, I had. when it was given to the um, Victoria and Albert Museum by Jay-Z, we, I had this, the marvellous curator, Richard Edgecombe, who's just retired, who, you know, is just buried under books up in the eaves of the great Victoria and Albert Museum, It's a huge academic, and he had to bring this piece to the studio for us to photograph, and he said, it's been given by somebody called Jay I think, Richard, you'll find it's Jay-Z. Anyway, it has subsequently become, through her celebrity, one of their most visited pieces of jewellery in the exhibition.
1: I think it's a fantastic piece of jewellery. I had a a variation on it um, in the exhibition from Glenn, who, who generously loaned it. Um, to me. And to me, the way the piece, the, the mechanism on the back of the ring, the way it, it moves the wings when you move your finger, to me, that was, I thought, a fun play on um, En Tremblant. You know, you could do the En Tremblant yourself when you move the ring in a modern way to move it. But yeah, I think it's a
0: wonderful piece of jewelry. It is. And it's certainly very eye-catching. It's all you need, isn't it? And somebody will notice you. But I think before we move on to other animals, I mean, we have to reference the Joel Rosenthal butterflies because when he had his retrospective at the Met, how many years ago was that about well? ten years ago yeah, back then. and he had a whole wall of of red with all these butterflies um, alighting on it like they were about to take off in flight. They're magnificent, aren't they? Yes,
1: yes. And with the silver and gold, it was almost going back to the late 19th century style when he did the silver top gold and kind of made it, you know, the nebby pave with various sizes of stones.
0: And then apart from um, sort of aesthetic and um, artistic movements that have affected the different animals that people have worn, I mean, you, you document how even politics can, can affect animal designs. And you talk about when dragonflies became popular. Yes, dragonflies
1: are certainly an example of that. When, um, you know, trade opened up with the West and, uh, and with Japan. And uh, the Japanese started bringing in their arts and crafts, really, their wares into Europe Um in, uh, the international exhibitions. And we know for a fact that Louis Comfort Tiffany attended these and certainly other artists. And the dragonfly had so much meaning to the Japanese as a symbol of spring and cunning and, you know, movement and it, it moved into jewelry as well as we think of the Louis Comfort Tiffany uh, lamps. And his most popular lamp was with a dragonfly design on the shade. So um, it did move into jewelry. And I, I feel like it's just one of those insects that has become, you know, almost like hearts to jewelry. There's certain things that we just do again and again. It's in the jewelry vernacular. And um, dragonflies began as, uh, you know, as you say, kind of a political opening up and change in the world. And then they've just ended up being a beloved creature.
0: What is it about insects? We do seem to be obsessed by insects. I mean, is it because we see them crawling up our clothes? Or you'd think creepy, crawly creatures, would people wouldn't really be attracted so much to them. But it seems each generation... Find their own insects.
1: Well, I think that's true. And I, in the beginning, I, one of the pieces that I had. Um, was a large stag beetle, about an inch and a half, maybe two inches, very realistic looking, that I found at Boucheron in Paris. It's part of their archives. And they showed it to me, and I said, I, I love it. It's beautiful. The quality of the emeralds on it are, I'm sorry, rubies on it are stunning, and the gold and the diamonds, and, and the parts of the mandibles, and it's very realistic. And I, I kind of had a joke with myself, like, Could you imagine in 1893, your husband taking you into the Place Vendôme and saying, oh, honey, you must have this stag beetle. And, you know, as much as I love the design, I really couldn't understand it. But then the deeper I got into the research, I realized when I came across I have a a very realistic leaf weevil from Tiffany, also from the same period, eighteen ninety three, with Emeralds. I realized that people actually loved these insects. They didn't think of them as creepy crawlers. They looked at them for their jewel-like qualities, and they collected insects, as you say. So they were really looking at them as objects of beauty, and that you can tell by the the quality level um, that jewelers interpreted them in, the quality of the gems, the, you know, meticulous recreation of the um, insect into jewelry. And then another piece that follows that um, line of thinking is a wasp, which was part of a series made by Van Cleef and Arpels um, in 1927. And it has uh, table cut diamonds in the wings that are cut to look like, you know, the veins in the wings. So they're in various shapes. They're kind of pieced together like a puzzle. And just to think of how difficult that was to do in terms of technologically cutting the stones and finding the table cut diamonds and then making it a wasp. Something no one wants to see alive in their home. I, you know, it's, it's, that's when it began to, you know, dawn on me
0: that um, people actually loved these insects as objects of beauty. And do you think it was just that they were studying? There was a great movement to study insects. There was this thing of artist explorers going out finding different exotic creatures and bringing them back and bringing them to museums that, that generated that?
1: Exactly right. That's what it was. You know, they weren't like us on the internet, wasting away their days. <laughs> they were actually studying, you know, entomology, butterflies. And, you know, we think of birds of paradise. And, and people were fascinated by nature as, as the world became more technological, the Industrial Revolution.
0: Yes. I guess so. And sort of going back to the purity of nature. Yes. And you talked about diamonds. And then there's another creature that, again, I haven't been able to come to grips with in my jewellery box, lizards and salamanders. (laughs) And... Do um, you think that was propelled by um, the demon toy garnet discoveries?
1: Well, the demon toy garnet discovery, um, you know, I, I only had lizards, but of course, there are many little scatter pins and all kinds of creatures you can find with the demon toy garnets. They, they had butterflies and turtles and, you know, people would wear them scattered all over their their jackets
0: and, um. So this is like late 19th century as well. Really, yes. When they were found I mean, my in theory Russia. is
1: that it's, it's part symbolism in this case. Perhaps not. I think that the, um, you know, the stag beetle and the leaf weevil, I think was a true study of entomology. But I, I believe that, you know, those are a little bit lighter. They're a little bit more caricature, which I tried to stay away from, generally speaking. But I think that those little demitoid garnet pieces, are just a little playful. They are realistic to a certain degree, but I think the, the symbolism of animals does come into play. You know, turtles are a symbol of home, you know, things like that. And there was just such an abundant supply of this beautiful stone, which we don't see a lot today, um, that beautiful green, which is, you know, sparkles like a diamond. So I think that... um You know, they were just a playful, fun piece to have.
0: I guess the other time we had a lot of lizards was in the 1980s. We had those huge crystal lizards. You're right. But we think about Butler and Wilson and everyone had huge shoulder pads. And I guess it balanced these enormous lizards.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's funny what people love. I mean, some people, they they just want a lizard. They adore it. There's a great lizard bracelet by Cartier that was made in the 1970s, which I could definitely wear. And um, it belonged to a French actress. It's very realistic, very beautiful. And
0: um, she clearly had some affinity for the lizard. I think in um, The Victorians um, went slightly more towards sort of domesticity. Yes. Um, I think sort of what was happening then was that pet keeping was becoming more culturally acceptable. And um, it was seen as they talk, you know, the Victorians were all about home and domestic life. And that one of the things that children could do to develop morality was to keep a pet and sort of keeping pedigree dogs really took off. And I guess that shows in the in the jewelry that they were attracted to.
1: Yes, there are a lot of charming, um, you know, domestic. Animals made in jewelry, uh, cats and dogs, and um, you know, there's even uh, chickens and roosters and things like that. And you know, I don't have many specifics about dogs and cats. I know they're always in there. There, you know, I could have done an exhibition of dogs and cats because they certainly, they certainly have been made throughout time. And I think that's what it is. It's just a reflection of um, people enjoying their dogs in or cats in jewelry. You know, um, in America we. had a jeweler named William Ruser during the 1950s, and he was based in Los Angeles. So many um, actresses, you know, like Joan Crawford had poodle brooches and things of that nature. Well, Especially
0: over here, you know, the British love their dogs and their horses. So um, there were certainly lots. And in fact, I I found this quote in... um, Vogue in 1929, February 1929, and they wrote, The lightness and solidity of the mountains permit an infinite variety of invention. Witness the dogs, horses, jockeys and similar design that are flaunted so proudly on felt hats and turbans. So there were certainly um, people, you know, flaunting their dogs and horses then. Absolutely. Also, you talk a bit about sport, you know, here we're talking about racing and jockeys influencing what people were wearing around Britain. In the US, you talk about fishing. Yes, I did talk about fishing because, you know, fish are, are one of the
1: creatures, um, out in the wild and there's an abundance of, uh, fish Jewels that were made actually by American jewelers at the time. And, you know, we all see them. They're everywhere. They're kind of ubiquitous. They're swordfish and tuna fish and bonefish. And, um, they're very specific. They're very beautifully made. They're made by the best American jewelers, really from the 20s throughout the 1950s. And I'd never, you know, understood why there were so many you know, in an exact kind of way. Obviously, people were fishing and celebrating that. And I I did do a little background on it. And it was just, you know, women, there were women uh angler clubs and men and all the American presidents and, you know, American actresses would be, Ava Gardner, Betty Davis, they were uh, doing publicity stills of themselves fishing. So that's when I realized, you know, what a society event it was, and, um, you know, why we had all these
0: fish jewels. So
1: where were they fishing? What part of the oh, state? all over um, in the in the northeast, there are, uh, you know, there's some of them still exist. There are camps where people would go to and kind of, you know, what we'd call glamping today, and they would do fishing down in, um, Florida. There was a lot of fishing. Certainly in California, there was fishing and they would also go on expeditions on trips. So they would celebrate these moments with um, fish jewels. And uh, I actually had an all-diamond um, swordfish that was engraved celebrating a famous catch when the uh, fisherman caught the first broadbill swordfish off the coast of the Atlantic, a gentleman named Oliver Cromwell Grinnell. And, you know, you think, oh, well, that sounds like a random footnote in history. And, of course, I look it up and it was really headline news everywhere. So the fish were very popular.
0: And these were specimens to look like a particular fish or were they mementos of the fishing trips? They were, um, I believe
1: they were uh, a little bit of both. I mean, they were very specifically made. They were very beautifully manufactured. Um, for example, I had a, uh, a tarpon fish which had cushion shaped, um, Sapphires in, uh, you know, a kind of degradé going over the top. So it looked like the depth of the water on, on the back of the fish. And it would have enamel, black enamel fins and a, you know, an emerald cabochon eye. And these jewels are not big. Again, they're about an inch and a half. Um, but they were just magnificently done, which I always think is a reflection of their importance. So, yes, they're really beautiful
0: jewels. And you said that um, the socialite Bunny Mellon had um, a particular incident which led to an unusual fish jewel being created. What was that? Yes, Bunny Mellon was, of course, great friends with
1: Jean Schlumberger. I mean, they were best friends. They spoke on the, to- on the phone all
0: the time. Um, you know, she called him Johnny. And, um, and Jean Schlumberger, for anyone listening who doesn't know, was this great French designer who started off creating for Chaparelli. He started creating costume buttons and and pieces and was really the first name designer subsequently at for Tiffany.
1: Yes, he was. Magnificent um, designer, which they're, they're really reviving today with the new French ownership. So we're going to see a lot more Jean Schlumberger. But um, when he was alive, he was uh, best friends with the American socialite Bunny Mellon. And in one of their routine phone calls, um, she told him about an accident she had had while she was swimming in the Caribbean. Um, she was stung by a jellyfish, apparently quite seriously, all over her shoulder. And so he had the idea, he did not tell her, he had the idea to make a jellyfish jewel. And it's really a masterpiece. The bell of the jellyfish is with moonstones and, um, you know, the tentacles are gold. They're on springs so that they move when you wear them and they're sapphire um, curling t- tentacles it's really one of his great great masterpieces and he showed it to her and she loved it so they they clearly understood each other you know so then she
0: had to buy it he was Kind of yeah, sure she he admired. did not give it to her. She bought it. <laughs> but as I say, I mean, the, he understood her taste and 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 sensibility, obviously. And he came along just at the time, really, um, emerging out of the bleakness of the depression, when you know the period really demanded a bit of fantasy, and um, he created this sort of idiosyncratic exotic creatures that a lot of them were fantastical, weren't they? They weren't necessarily realistic.
1: Yes, that's true. With Schlumberger, I did find um, his, you know, Knight of the Iguana brooch um, that was originally designed for Elizabeth Taylor, absolutely irresistible. And um, when he designed the piece in the early 1960s, it, um, you know, he called it a dolphin. And what he was referencing, of course, was Renaissance art, which was a great source of inspiration for him. So it looks like one of the fantasy fish that you would see on a dolphin in, our, you know, the fountains of Rome.
0: And that was because Richard Burton was filming?
1: Yes, Richard Burton um, bought one of the original designs in 1963. That's why it's called The Night of the Iguana, because he bought it for her, after the Elizabeth Taylor, after they were done with the filming, um
0: of the movie. It doesn't look like an iguana, really, but that's what we've always called it. And actually, again, I found it a great quote in Vogue because Vogue used to love to gossip at that time about who owned what in those days when you could, people wanted to sort of flaunt their jewels. And they said in, in 1937, the Duchess of Kent has bought from that new designer in Paris, Jean Schlumberger, a beautiful gold flying fish pair of earrings with diamond fins so large they cover half her ear.
1: I've actually so come then. across that quote before. <laughs> yes, that was divine. I think he was still with Scaparelli at that moment.
0: Yes, he must have been, mustn't he? So, and then we talk about fish now, and um, you talk a lot about Stephen Webster, who used titanium, to make them very light. Yes, yes.
1: Titanium, I believe, is, um, I don't know if Stephen would like if I said this, but I, I, he might agree, that um, I think titanium is, is what platinum was in the beginning to certain master craftsmen like Stephen Webster or Wallace Chan. I feel like it's a material that's so incredibly difficult to work that I don't know that it's going to last, you know, in terms of um, it taking off for everybody, because most people don't have the patience or the skill to work work it out in the way that Stephen did. And um, of course, he used it on the piece that I have in the book, which is a pair of Japanese fighting fish. And it's magnificent for jewelers because they can make such large scale pieces, and they're still light. So they work with the clothes for women today. And they can also, um, ionize it so they can change the color of the material. And he made his Japanese fighting fish, um, in titanium blue and then covers it with, uh, blue sapphires and some diamonds with an, you know, a Santa Maria aquamarine in the middle, which is supposed to be the swirling waters of the ocean. It's really wonderful.
0: Yes, it is wonderful. And I guess um, the other focus in jewellery is birds. Mm -hmm. There's so many birds, aren't there? And again, those seem to change over time.
1: Totally. In the same way you you were mentioning that, um, you know, the meaning of butterflies changes for different generations. That's certainly true of the birds. And, um, you know, of course, birds are, are made by many different, jewelers from different places around the world but all the birds that i had were french and i think that it's it really is again reflective of the nation because you think of birds as kind of, you know they're peacocks really they're showing off you know the different species of the birds and the french have done them particularly well so um you know, they've made their aigrettes at the turn of the century, worn in the hair. And then, of course, during World War II, many French jewelers um, made birds that were symbols of freedom and liberation during the occupation.
0: Cartier famously made the, their golden cage, didn't they, with the bird in the golden cage and of, after liberation it was created with the open door free exactly to fly.
1: yes that is the, the most famous story about birds and um, and during the war in in France and many people know it that when you know Jean Toussaint put this very small little bird in a cage in the window of Cartier on the Rue de la Paix that the Gestapo went in and questioned her and, um, you know, some people believe that she was put in jail and then busted out by Coco Chanel. But Cartier tells me, no, that's not the case. Um, they say that she was questioned and she told the Gestapo that it was an old design. Um, you know, and apparently they believed her and she was not put in jail, but, but many jewelers also made birds at the time, you know, to kind of telegraph to the the French public, sort of, "We'll be okay." Um, Cartier made a kingfisher, which is in the book, with beautiful um, carved emerald wing set in the carved emeralds set in the wings, and you know, again, a symbol of prosperity, freedom, you know, "We'll make it through." So it, it was very important to the French. And then after after the war ended, um, almost immediately, similar to, you know, fashion with Dior and the new look, suddenly, you know, the French were peacocks again. And I had an eight and a half inch tall um, sort of fantasy peacock that was made by Cartier as a special commission. Um, You know, huge piece of jewelry. War is over. Let's live. And um, again, you
0: know, the, the meaning of the bird changes. And then hummingbirds, lots of colorful birds when they were brought over from South America. Then jewelers then begin to imitate those and the colors, don't they?
1: Yes, exactly. Every species. It's kind of remarkable how many you can find different birds specifically
0: um, you know, in jewelry than when people are being exact. And of course, the, the gold war wow work of Pierre Sterlet you, you, you have in the book, which is just so wonderful. I think he made my favorite birds.
1: Yes, absolutely remarkable. Those were very new for, for many people to see. And Pierre Sterlet is another one of our, uh, designers who really started on the bench. So you see all this innovation in his creations. And he was really known for his dynamic diamond jewelry, but he made a, just an enormous flock of birds, many of which feature, um, you know, gold work, loop and loop chain. And, you know, the story is that he saw this chain um, in the museum in Cairo on Cleopatra's jewels. And then he applies it to birds and makes it look like plumage and feathers. And of course, it has movement. So and every one is different. I, I've never seen two that look alike. They're really, it's a remarkable collection. And these were all while he was at Show Me? No, actually, it was before he was at And then ongoing when he did
0: join Shomay, yes. And so we've talked about a few pieces from Cartier, but obviously one of the most famous animals of all time is the panther. So we have to discuss the panther. And first of all, I wanted to know why so many jewelers are interested in big cats. Tigers, panthers, Chanel, the lion. What is it about the big cat that draws them, do you think? Um,
1: well, the, the big cats, you know, I was fascinated by it and animals of Africa, giraffes and, um, you know, elephants and, uh, the big cats, because they really don't exist, um, to the degree of butterflies or snakes throughout the last 150 years. They came on very strong in the 1960s and 70s and, you know, I was wondering why. And if you look into context of what was happening at the time, it was the, the period of um, great conservation movements to try and save the, you know, extinction of animals in Africa. And we think of, you know, the Peter Beard books that he was putting out from his work that he was doing at the time, or even Jane Goodall. So, you know, it's, it's really much in the same way that jewelers in the late 19th, early 20th century were responding to people's interest in insects, they were responding to what they were seeing in the news. And I think that you see this kind of reaction from jewelry designers manifested more clearly in animals than any other thing, like a necklace or a bracelet. So the Cartier cats stand alone because they're really an icon of the house, but lions, cats, you know, tigers, all of that in general really came in in the 1960s. And, um, that's what they were responding to. But to backtrack to your original question on Cartier, um, Cartier themselves, of course, like to walk the history of the Panther back to 1914 when they first started making them. But I step aside from them and it, it's really to me, um, the history began in, um, 1949, I believe it was, when the Duchess of Windsor's panther was made, because that's the way we think of the panther today. This large, incredibly powerful looking cat sitting on top of an an enormous cabochon sapphire, you know, kind of growling to the skies on top of the world. You know, again, it's kind of a post-war, we're back, you know, motif of strength. And really, it's Jean Toussaint at Cartier, who was running the show at that point. The Cartier brothers, Louis Cartier, was dead by that time. And she was working directly with Peter Lamarchand, the designer, who was studying cats at the Paris Zoo.
0: But um, Francesca Cartier, in her book about the Cartier brothers, tells the story of Jacques Cartier reading The Jungle Book by Roger Kipling to his son and circled an image of a panther chasing a bear and said, "Without the bear, <laughs> like this was something they they wanted to create." But I think you're right. Then it, it took several more years it did. before that. Um, the, the panther incarnation
1: happened. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, panthers were very popular when they, Cartier originally launched them in 1914, just in fashion. I mean, it's not, it's a little uh, gruesome, I think, for us today to think about how they were hunted and women wore, you know, panther fur coats and panther fur rugs and things like that did Especially exist. Especially
0: Jean Toussaint. I know. Herself, whose yes. apartment was apparently covered in skins and pelts. Yes,
1: exactly. But but it did change, I think, by the you know the time that she really created the jewel. And I really um, feel that that was, you know, people often say that um, Louis Cartier, of course, his nickname for Jean Toussaint was Le Panther. But I really feel like by the time she got to the 1940s and made what we think of as the Cartier Panther today, Um, was really her creative genius.
0: And I think so many other women followed on, didn't they? Quite avant-garde women of the time. Um, Daisy Fellows, Barbara Hutton. They all wore panthers, didn't they? Panthers or tigers from Cartier. And I think, you know, was that to to express that they were unusual, avant-garde, free spirits? Because it almost seems to me that you have that um, sort of, almost emblem of freedom so you've got the 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 nature of the woman but then it's combined with the attitude of the animal yeah
1: I think so I, I don't think there's any doubt about it they were empowered women you know who knew they had an absolute sense of style that you know empowered in their sense of style is what I should say um they they, they wanted these you know literally fierce
0: creatures and I tried on I don't know if you did at the time Marion when um in 2012 uh One of uh, the Duchess of Windsor's panther bracelets was being sold at auction and I tried it on and it was the most articulate, perfectly created piece that this panther literally slid across your wrist with its paws flopping over to one side. Um, incredible piece of um, craftsmanship. It is. It th- really that was that's true
1: of of all of them. I mean, th- that's what I. It's unfortunate, you know, in a book where you can't see it necessarily, or in an exhibition where you can't touch it. As you had the opportunity to do with her bracelet, the articulation on all these pieces is extraordinary. And it's just a sign of the, you know, the high jewelry, the fine craftsmanship. And as I was saying, the head moves on most of them, you know, just a little to the left and the right. It makes it a little bit toy-like. Um, and obviously, that's not something that even someone can see when you're wearing the jewel. That's kind of something for the person wearing the jewel. And um, you know, apparently there is a uh, urban legend that when the Duchess of Windsor wore her famous brooch um, on the sapphire, uh, when she wanted to leave a party, she turned the head in the other direction. It was like a you know little signal. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Hey.
0: We're done. You know, take me there. home. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's my imagination. I mean, I sort of look at, uh, as you do, a lot of these um, panthers at Cartier, and they do seem to have different expressions. I don't know if it's my imagination. <laughs> they definitely seem to have different expressions, and I don't know whether you notice it, but they seem fiercer now. I think they're fiercer animals, don't you think? I, I,
1: they absolutely have expressions, and um, I... I, at one point when the exhibition had been delayed three times during the pandemic, and um, it was one point in February when we found out it had been delayed yet again until the end of spring. But we had a lot of the jewels already at the museum. And I was looking down at a, a, you know, a a rolling tray in the safe room with with a lot of the jewels. And I started talking to them. You're all going to hibernate for the winter you look terrific. And, you know, the registrar was with me and she said, excuse me, what are you saying? What, what? And I said, I'm just talking to the jewels. And I realized I've never talked to jewelry before, but they do, they all have these expressions and faces and they, they look right back at you. You know, there's, there's a real warmth with, with the animals that have the faces Unless they're kind of being fierce, you know, and then but you also want to talk to them, too.
0: I also think there's a there's a change of the panther along with um, women in society, because I think the original panthers, they were kind of like domesticated. They had little little diamond collars on. They might be on leashes. Well, you don't see the panthers on leashes now. They're out there. They're free. They're wild. And they do what they want. Don't you think? Yes, I do. Completely. Um, but also about that time, Cartier made an unusual, um, they had an unusual commission from the, um, Mexican actress Maria Felix. They've made a couple of unusual animals for her, haven't they?
1: Yes. She, you know, famous Mexican actress, quite wonderful, you know, painted by Diego Rivera, you know, just a legendary figure. She she is lesser known in the United States because she never made Hollywood movies. She didn't want to be typecast. Um, she married a Frenchman and lived in Paris. Uh, during the 70s. And she apparently, the rumor is, and I, this is the answer I get from Cartier, we cannot confirm nor deny. But she apparently, what the story is walked into Cartier in Paris one day with a live baby crocodile and said, make me a, a necklace with two crocodiles or a crocodile necklace, we don't know. And they certainly did. I mean, it's the most magnificent piece of jewelry fully articulated in the way that you were describing the panther it moves completely even though it's quite large Um, It's set with uh, one crocodile is in yellow diamonds, the other is in emeralds. The piece comes entirely apart. It can be worn as two brooches. It's just extraordinary. And it's really a sign of how some clients like a Maria Felix can walk into a great jeweler like Cartier and elevate them even further with their desires.
0: As long as they work quickly before the crocodile (laughs) got too large. (laughs) Yeah, right. We don't know if she walked back out with the crocodile, (laughs) but yes, exactly. But it's quite interesting how um, I think now there's a lot of feeling out there when people are wearing animals. They might not be the sort of figurative version, but they're choosing animals that they think reflect their spirit. And I think in a similar way, most of the big jewelry houses choose an animal that they kind of own and that reflects their spirit as well, don't you think that?
1: That's really true. Yeah, it is true. We have Cartier and the Panther and and, and that kind of fierceness. You know, they, they always imagine themselves as very edgy and cool, and they are. And um, David Webb, the American jeweler, they have the zebra. I, I mean, that's an imaginative, with a, I guess a, a a dose of whimsy. Of course, um, Bulgari has really taken over the snake.
0: Van Cleef and Arpels, the butterfly. Yes, they do. They really do have the butterfly. And I guess I such a poetic whimsy brand
1: that, I mean, that suits them, doesn't it? It does suit them, to achieve. Very romantic, always, you know, flowers and butterflies. And
0: Boucheron have chameleon? The cat? The cat and chameleon. What do you think they have as their main one? I know they have,
1: I you know, I don't know. We don't, I don't get as much Boucheron uh, contemporary in the United States as you do over there. They're mm. not, as, they haven't really planted the flag again over here. But they do have that house cat, the
0: black cat. Valdemir. They yes. have a house cat, Valdemir who lived <laughs> in the Place Vendôme. And Valdemir comes out in different incarnations, I think, and during couture week. Yes. But then I, um, and I thought actually, Chopard, um, quite a few years ago, um, Caroline Sheffley, the co-president, created 150 different animals. And she said very much, "I want to really glorify ugly animals." Yes. She said, "Even the little centipedes or little things that people don't wouldn't want to wear, I want to to make into beautiful jewels." But she did them all as one-offs, didn't they? And yes. I think most of them got sold. And um, but I just love that fact that the, you know the, the ignored, the unloved, all those animals paraded through Chopin like a little. Arc, that show arc of animals.
1: It's true. It's true. Many um, designers over the years have embraced animals, as we've said, that we might think of as creepy crawlers. You know, Hammerley. I had a gigantic tarantula that was made magnificently by Hammerlay in the 1990s. And, um, you know,
0: a, a very scary thing, <laughs> but they made it. I think, yes, over the years doing shoots for Vogue, I've done sort of I've done them in sort of like carnival moods. I've done, you know, every so often you just feel there's a complete mood for figurative animals. And, yes. Um, you know, I've photographed um, uh, fish rings and things with live lobsters in the studio. I mean, I've, I've had animals. You know, every so often, amazing. Also, when we we talked earlier about politics affecting the animal, um, I think. Recently, we've had this complete fashion of people messaging through animal jewels, the political messaging, particularly from um, Madeleine Albright, the former US Secretary of State, who wrote yeah. that book, Read My Pins. Yes. And she she used animals like that, didn't she, a lot?
1: Yes, she did. You know, I met her and spoke to her about her love of brooches. And, and she really, you know, made it a part of what she wore in a
0: wonderful way, I think. And I think that, you know, if a negotiation was going very slowly, she'd take a tortoise out of her collection. If there was a contentious encounter and she needed to do a little stinging to deliver a tough message. She had a wasp, like you were describing. Um, and after the Russians were caught tapping the State Department, she wore a giant bug brooch. Yeah. So she certainly, <laughs> you know, got her message across about what was happening and what she might not be happy about. There was that
1: judge, the English judge, who at some point with Brexit, I don't remember the
0: exact story. Yet. It was Lady Hale. And she had to give the Supreme Court's verdict against the government, against Boris Johnson, and she chose to make it wearing this enormous spider. So, of course, there was a rash of theories about what the symbolism of that spider meant. And actually, it's made everybody look at... The brooches and the jewelry and the significance of an animal that people are wearing ever since. Oh, it's so true.
1: I mean, I think that we live in such a visual world now that everybody is, you know, making theories on what people are wearing, why and when. Um, You know, I certainly feel that's true of the Queen. Every single thing that she does, you know, if there's some politician she's meeting with and wearing something, you know, that... People will read into every detail of it.
0: We've got a lot of people um, are wearing bees because I think, as you talked about the conservation in the kind of 60s and 70s, people becoming aware of wildlife and poaching and trafficking of animals. Now it's all about um, losing their wild spaces and habitats and endangered um, species. And You covered some of that in your book, didn't you, with marine life? Yes, I
1: think that that's true. I, I mean, um, people are certainly uh, tuned into. Uh, one designer that I did cover in the book, Paula Crevache, um, she only makes animals um, and uses a lot of beautiful gemstones American designer and um, she she gives a portion of her proceeds to uh, various charities where they are helping, you know, the animals survive or um not become extinct and um certainly Tiffany has done the same with their Save the Wild collection which ends the book actually. And um they've raised millions of dollars by selling this collection and 100% of the proceeds go to um save elephants and other animals in Africa which are once again, you know, facing extinction which is, is hard to believe, but true. So giving back to the animals who have given so richly to the jewellery design sphere. So by
0: wearing a bee or a particular animal, you are showing the conviction that you are wanting to save that animal. So again, we've come around to a kind of modern interpretation of the figurative animal in jewellery. Yes. You talk about, um, you said that seahorses is one thing that's quite rare quite rare. Um, who who created a seahorse?
1: I have a seahorse from Marina B in the collection and a uh, beautiful Tiffany um, seahorse in the collection. And then I, I do have a, a, a picture of Princess Anne um, wearing her seahorse in the 1970s in the book. And I, you know, I don't know honestly why they're rare because they're so charming, um, really magical creatures to think about, um, floating along in the water and just their, their whole body shape. I would think would be such a, um, area of creativity for jewelry designers. And I I just simply didn't come across that many. They were, you know, kind of a few random examples that I I found irresistible. So in they went.
0: And is there anything that you found absolutely not represented that you thought, gosh, why hasn't nobody made that?
1: You know, I I didn't at the time. Um, You know, people had the misconception. They said, oh, you must have just had so many things to choose from. And again, because I had to actually secure the jewels to be in an exhibition that are in the book, I really didn't. You know, I had to scour the earth to get jewels and i went far and wide and i um you know it, it was a challenge i i worked with the you know the corporate um archives cartier tiffany van cleef and Arpels. i worked with some of the vintage jewelry dealers that have their own little private collections of pieces they've held back and i worked with private collectors so um I, I suppose I didn't have the luxury to think, oh, what am I missing? I wished I'd had more egrets, um, more of the hair ornaments. You know, uh, Chaumet has some beautiful ones. But um, again, there was a conflict in the date, so I, I couldn't get any of their beautiful egrets. But I was giving a tour and there were some children in the tour. And one little boy said to me, you should have a golden beetle. And I said, well, you know, I didn't come across a golden beetle, but you're absolutely right. And I think he was right there. Of
0: course, there are many animals I was missing. But next time, Sean Lean has a beautiful golden beetle that oh. he always wears on his lapel so that he can sort that one out. Sorry, I didn't have it. That was an oversight on my part. But generally you think now, gosh, what what animal there is an animal I've thought of that I think no jeweler's tackled yet i i really have no i haven't so the ark is there the whole noah's ark is there yes. and <laughs> and what do you think marian what what is going to be the next animal trend what do you see in the future oh
1: for sure the butterfly is with us it is with us still it is i mean we are obviously in in a such a moment of change you know i think people would like to also come out of this period um like a butterfly. You know, they're all over fashion. So I I would like to think that we
0: see a butterfly revival. Well, that would be nice. And then we're back to the beginning. Yes. And what would they be made in? More diamonds or other stones? You know,
1: I'd like to think lots of color. I would like a lot of color, a lot of unusual gems, but I leave that in the designer's hands. Do you have an animal jewel yourself? I do. I have um, a couple of snake rings, you know, I mean, I think that, of course, the snake um, is, is such an important animal going back to ancient Greece, but I like it um, also just design wise, because I like the movement that it provides in jewelry. So, you know, I have a couple of snake rings from the late 19th century, a blue enamel one, which is engraved Margaret. And then I have a gold one with a little diamond in it, the head. And he has no engraving with a name on it. So he's Miles. He had to have a name. You know, again, we talked to the animal jewels. Thank you so much, Marion. That
0: was great.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwoulton.com slash podcasts. And if you liked it, please share it any way you can. And please subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the usual platforms where you find your podcasts, where we'd love a rating and a comment. And we'll be here again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget, where we'll be talking about The Breath of the White Dragon. Every civilization, extending back to the earliest humans have been drawn to rock crystal for its beauty and vitality. And we're going to discuss its associated meanings, symbolism, magical qualities with the author, social historian, and star of BBC's Antiques Roadshow, Geoffrey Munn. Please join us then. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Wilton is produced by Natasha Cowan. Music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton.